if you happen to have moved into this country like I did five years ago, or just the, the you know, we talk a lot about financial inclusion, or you simply do not have enough of a digital track record, you're now given the option um, to go through an open banking journey, consent to sharing your financial data, and you know, you're more likely to, to get a credit approval because of that. You're listening to Payments Innovation, a podcast dedicated to helping business leaders navigate today's global digital economy. Looking to learn about the latest innovations within fintech and payments? You've come to the right place. Let's get into the show. Welcome to another episode of the Payments Innovation podcast. This is your host, Lauren Passy from Currency Cloud. And today I'm joined by Rafa Plantier from Tink. Welcome, Rafa. Thank you. Great to be here. Thank you for having me. Anytime. So for our listeners, Rafa, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and about Tink? Sure. So I'm Rafa Plantier. I'm the country manager for Tink for UK and Ireland. Uh, I've been with the company for over a year now. Before Tink, I worked in uh, banking for 15 years, banking and fintech. So organizations like City, Stripe, and Emotion Acquiring Business in Brazil. So I spent most of my time working financial infrastructure and now, you know, very glad to be working on financial data infrastructure uh, with Tink. And Tink, we actually started our, our, our life as a company about eight years ago as a B2C app in Sweden, doing what we now call open banking, account aggregation, payment initiation. But this all precedes the you know, industry foundations of the CMA 9 order in 2014 or PSD2 in 2015 or GDPR in 2016. So, so Tink is one of these or few organizations that uh, have really paved the way to what we now see as an industry in open banking. One of the most interesting moments for Tink was after these three things with the, these foundations for a bigger market, uh, the company decided to pivot to be 100% B2B. So we moved away from having you know, consumers using a, an app managed by Tink to partnering with organizations that use Tink technology to do account aggregation, payment initiation, and all the financial insights and things that, that you know, help people have better financial lives. And, and that really became the whole company. And, and, and thankfully, we've been quite successful in that run. We now are live in 40 markets. Uh, we, we work with nearly 50 institutions that I would call like the national champions of uh, financial services. So institutions like the NatWest Group here in the UK or ABN AMRO or Santander, EBVA, SCB, Nordia, BNL, La Poste Italiana. So pretty much every, each one of these 14 countries, if you look at, um, we have one big banking group as a, as a customer. And then we have a group of fintechs, especially I think with Skewtho is larger fintechs, organizations like the PayPal Group or Klarna or Kivra. And then we have 5,000 smaller players, independent developers who, have, who are live on the Tink platform. And, and yeah, we've, uh, we've been live in the UK for three years now. We've opened this office in October last year. So we're just about coming to one year of, of uh, local presence and, uh, uh, and a growing one. So we're, we're quite happy with that. It's exciting to have you on the show. And obviously, you know, open banking seeing a lot of traction now and Tink's kind of at the forefront of that. And, you know, we hear a lot about Tink in the industry. Um, you know, so, I mean, with PSD2 and open banking, it's been in effect for a while now. I mean, how do you, you kind of touched upon the kind of partnerships that you have with NatWest and lots of other fintechs. How do you think that both banks and fintechs are embracing open banking? And, and do you think that 
they're embracing open banking enough? And, and if not, you know, what else do you think that they should be doing? There's certainly a change from, the, from these organizations' use of, of open banking now from when one could argue the, the industry at large started in 2016. I think what we're seeing now is a much more targeted use of open banking. I think the, four, the, the initial use cases of open banking were propositions like the Tink app. So were the, what we call the PFM applications, so personal finance management applications. And I think now what we see is open banking in a way being much more and much less than that. So much more yeah. in the sense that we have open banking being you know, the first step in a mortgage journey. For example, so now instead of saying, "Hey, Lauren, do you want to submit your payslips for the last twelve months and your bank statements, and you know, wait three weeks for a credit decision?" All of that can actually be done with a face ID, and that's that's you know what we see as a much bigger proposition for than than a standalone PFM app and, and more central in, in to people's financial lives. Like you think about the big decisions that we make in a lifetime. Finance-wise, they're more likely to come from these processes than a, a, a standalone app. And on the other hand, we're seeing open banking being much more tactical. And this is what I mean by much less than that is in that if you think about open banking as the solution for the exchange of financial data based on user's consent, that can solve a problem wherever financial data is needed. And so we see, for example, we're working with one of the, one of the world's largest uh, card issuers in putting everyone that they decline through an open banking journey. So they have right. the current process in place today. And if you applying for a credit card and you, 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 know, you have enough credit history, it's the, you know, what you've been used to and maybe that's instant approval, et cetera. But if you happen to have moved into this country like I did five years ago or just, the, the, you know, we talk a lot about financial inclusion, you simply don't want, don't, do not have enough of a digital track record. You're now given the option to go through an open banking journey, consent to sharing your financial data and you know, you're more likely to, to get a credit approval because of that. So in that case, open bank is not the product and it's not the, a new proposition. It's just a much better user experience. And in that case, I think a measurably so, a more inclusive way of offering financial services. So that has changed. I don't think that would have been true in 2016, 2017. But that's true for both banks and fintechs, I think. Yeah. And I mean, you, you touched on it there a little bit. And I guess the biggest driver of innovation digital banking space is the end user experience and the needs. Would you say, would you say open banking is a challenge or, or an enabler here? I think now it's an enabler. I think, the, I think some organizations would have said it's a challenge in 2016 up until 2018, 2019, because particularly here in the UK, you had uh, the CMA9 order that, you know, ordered nine, the nine largest group banking groups in this country to implement, not just implement open banking, but implement these specific standards. And of course, throughout Europe, you have 5,000 institutions that had to comply with what we call the uh, regulatory technical standards uh, as issued by the European Banking Authority. So the initial experience for these institutions of open banking was very compliance heavy. And I think that, would have, that was challenging. I'm not sure at the time, the industry really had a view of how, how, how big of a challenge this is for some of these institutions. Like we're talking about these institutions now exposing the very core of their consumer business banking through a real-time API. And that is actually not true of their current infrastructure. They're, even their internal services uh, alone 
are not you know, real-time and that's responsive. So this was a major change for a lot of these institutions. The reason I think that has changed is because the, the larger end of those 5,000 institutions are now largely compliant, especially in Western Europe. And what we are seeing in these organizations is that they turn the, sh- the focus from, okay, am I compliant? Am I, am I uh, delivering everything that I, my national you know, supervisory authority says I have to? Now, what's in it for me? Like, can I help my consumers aggregate data from the outside and, and initiate payments across the whole financial industry? So we see this big change. And this is the, this is the upside side of open banking. And, and to be honest, this is, the, this is where our team comes in. But a lot of these compliance side of open banking was internal build, uh, especially for the UK largest institutions. As these institutions now look at the upside and like what's in it for them, I, I think it's fair to say that they're more likely to partner because yeah. then it comes into play this, you know, how do you manage this ever-changing landscape of open banking? How do you manage this across, you know, 32 countries of the EEA and so on? Yeah, you, actually, that's an interesting point there. You talked about partnerships. I mean, how are partnerships key for success for banks and fintechs, specifically around open banking? Kind of what's, what's your view on that? Absolutely. And the reason for that is that the nature of building and maintaining the services is fundamentally different from the nature of developing, deploying and maintaining financial services. So, the, you know, if you look inside Tink, um, we're now 350 people, nearly you know, 65% of those are engineers, laser focused on the you know, quality of these integrations, the and, and this, this gets quite complex if you think about this, because you have, you know, for each one of these 14 countries, there's a, a very nuanced landscape. And then you look at each one of these institutions within those countries. Within those institutions, sometimes you have different brands. And then for each one of those, ultimately, like consumer-facing brands, you have different financial products. Anything yeah. on that scale can be different, can, can be something that from an engineering perspective, you need to have a programmatic response to. So we spend a, a lot of time and effort in making in this very heterogeneous landscape homogeneous and um, you know unified under a single API. And I think it would be very difficult for, and not just for large institutions. I actually think you know these large institutions now have sprawling engineering organizations, but it's just the focus that's different. And that's also true for fintechs. Like if you're building a payments business or if you're building an identity business or if you're you know, regulatory technology, there's so many prop tech, there's so many different areas where you may need financial data or, or, or payments. And building this is such a of different nature that I think will be quite unorthodox to uh, not partner on this. Yeah. And you, you touched there slightly on, on payments. I mean, how do you think open banking is going to be disrupting the payment space? At the start of our kind of conversation, you touched on that open banking is more than just kind of how it being used for personal finance needs. We're seeing investment companies like Nutmeg offering open banking yep. payments. So, yeah, how, how do you think open banking is going to be disrupting the payment space? You know, and, and which of those industries currently leveraging open banking do you think will kind of be affected most for better and worse? First, I'll say is I think the ecosystem at large will will benefit from it. I think they're like, we, and this is, I hear this quite often where, where there's this you know, zero sum view of payments where if there's an emerging player or emerging payment method and, and if that's gaining ground, another one is losing ground. And I, I don't think that's 
that's true. And, and what I mean by this is I actually think there's a lot of that net new propositions and that new volume that's going to come with payment initiation. That's because, you know, over the last uh, 50 years that we've had electronic payments, those electronic payments have been very centered on a consumer buying from a merchant. And I think as, as that exchange moved online and became just a lot more complex financially, now you have merchants who are fintechs themselves. You have consumers who now hold an account at those fintechs and they're moving funds. To your example, with Nutmeg, they're moving funds from their financial institution to a fintech who may be on top of another financial institution. And that type of transaction was never the focus of uh, electronic payments to date. Mm-hmm. You know, it's what we call a me-to-me transaction. So you no, know, my account to my account. So there are things in the payments world of you know, uh, running authorization capture and settlement process separately. There is a chargeback guarantee on a transaction that, is, that should be an irrevocable bank transfer to myself. And then you can think also like there, there are difficulties when, when as the value goes up because there are things in the payments industry today that are ad valorem. So there's a basis points cost to this transaction. Yeah. That's kind of like built into the system because these are fundamentally like based, you know, uh, uh, coming out of the interchange fee regulations or card schemes or merchant acquiring fees. So all this to say, I think the more uh, recurring transactions are, the more um, this more secure end of transactions. So my example of a me-to-me transfer is a, is a good one. Yeah. Or the higher value of transactions, the more likely that bulk of volume is to become a payment initiation uh, bank transfer rather than, say, a car payment alternative payment method. And you could pro- probably think of two the two most prototypical use cases there, at least that we see, is um, this top-up transaction that you mentioned or uh, bill pay. So we, we work with an organization called Kivra in Sweden, who is sort of this digital mailbox uh, and, and that does all sorts of payments from utilities, including, including government. And if you think about the, you know, the HMRC tender that, that just closed this Monday, you know, it's such a, such a, a strong signal from the UK to be from HMRC to be looking at uh, collecting uh, payments through payment initiation, and uh, we're super excited about this sort of initiative. This is exactly what we do in Sweden, and I think it's such a is a sort of action that can that reverberates in the market, and you see more and more propositions coming through. So I think it's not about a player or payment method losing ground. I actually think it's just like, do, if you think about how do you pay for your services today or utilities or the tax authority, I think it's just more about you know, less intrusive payment methods than say box direct debits and more you know, programmatically con- uh, uh, consent at the time of transfer type of payment methods like uh, payment initiation. I think that's, that's the balance, uh, 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 the change of balance here. And I think that kind of touches on quite nicely the point that we we spoke about earlier around, I guess, partnerships within fintech being quite paramount, especially with open banking. And and a lot of the examples that you gave there are the kind of more fintech firms as such. But would you say that banks are viewing the adoption of open banking to support payments in the same way as fintechs are? Uh, I think so. I think one of the newest that we need to think about is particularly in the UK, because of the CMA 9 order, because this, this uh, industry started from an antitrust order, there's, there's always this 
incumbent versus entrant narrative uh, in, in, in PSD2 at large, but particularly in open banking. And I actually think that's not true anymore. Like, I, if, I think if you, if you were to divide the market, okay, what's, you know, what's the competitive landscape and how's that being affected by open banking? I actually think it's more about institutions that are digital enabled, not just digitally enabled, but have digital journey as being forefront of, the, of, mm-hmm. of their proposition. And that's true for major banks as well as, fint- as uh, fintechs. Uh, and then organizations that, uh, for whatever reason, uh, don't have that. And I actually think that's the real battleground. I don't think it's, it's, it's I, you know, there are, um, if you look at some of the largest institutions in this country, uh, apps, including Nat- NatWest and all its, or NatWest Group and all of its brands, uh, you see today, you see as many, like the same or as many features as you would see in some of the new banks back four, six years ago. And of course, that, that wasn't the case six years ago. And, but I, know, I don't think that the narrative of entrance and, and, and uh, incumbents is as true today as it was before. And, I mean, that's touching on it and kind of starting to kind of move into the realms of kind of the evolution of, of, of open banking. Obviously, you and I caught up a while ago and we kind of touched on the journey that the payments landscape has taken over the last 10 years and actually did some comparison over how... Um, kind of open banking is then kind of evolving and developing. What would you say are kind of the trends and commonalities between the history of payments and how that's evolved over the last 10 years and and open banking? Yeah, you know, we take things for granted. We think like, oh, payments just like feels like this water among the fish that that just simply works. And and the reality of payments as an industry has always been quite incremental. I think since, you know, we go back 1968, how Bank America became Visa and the, the the rise of payment schemes from you know those first five years, you went incrementally like creating uh, the industry went incrementally creating an authorization system, a capture system, and a settlement system, replacing what was you know calls and actually uh, you know reconciliation of paper drafts uh, all electronically, and then actually at the same time you have Swift connecting to now now eleven thousand banks and creating a a, a a standard messaging system. And, and that evolved continuously throughout time. We now, I'll, I'll give an example. Now, 10 years ago, we launched uh, Near Field Communication Payments, NFC. And, you know, for a number of years, people discussed what's the benefit for the consumer. Do people understand NFC? Are people, do people trust NFC? In, you fast forward 10 years later, you know, TFL is actually the largest NFC merchant in Europe. And people tap their cards without... Uh, necessarily knowing what NFC even is, and it's just become part of of their fabric. And I think the I think part of their financial lives fabric. I think the same is happening with open banking. We're just earlier on on that journey, and and I, I think the 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 what happening a lot of the things that happen in the payments industry are, are becoming true of of open banking. Mm-hmm. You had the rise of these platforms who partner with payment companies and started offering payment solutions. We see that happening in open banking, where the aggregation of financial data now becomes bundled in a, in a larger offering on marketplaces, for example. Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're seeing kind of similar trends um, here at Currency Cloud. So it's really interesting touching on, on some of these points. And I think that fintechs and banks kind of innovation and to, to kind of add on not just kind of 
the payments, but it's the payments, it's the payment initiation side of thing, it's the banking, and I'm bringing all of that into kind of one service offering. And, you know, from our side of things, um, it's it's been really interesting catching up with you. And and thank you so much for joining us today. For anyone else out there that kind of has been listening and would like to find out more, Rafa, what's the kind of um, best way to get in contact with you um, to kind of learn more about more learn about Tink and and open banking? Sure. I'm Rafa at Tink.com. So R-A-F-A at Tink.com. You can also find a lot of uh, resources at Tink.com, including a number of uh, market research uh, uh, that, that we have invested in. We're super interested in, you know, like to think of ourselves as thought partners in this for policymakers, for banks, for fintechs. And, and so definitely check out Tink.com as, as we have a, a lot of new resources there and, and a, quite a few new ones. So check it out. Great. Well, thanks again for joining us and sharing some great insight. And I, I look forward to catching up with you again soon. As well. Thank you, Lauren. Great talking to you. Currency Cloud is an online payments company that makes international money transfers fast and simple for businesses. We're building a borderless future where international transactions are seamless for a better user experience. Discover the world's most trusted payment platform and our toolkit of developer-friendly APIs at currencycloud.com. You've been listening to the Payments Innovation Podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe now in iTunes or your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Until next time.